Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. During the weeks of Eastertide, we have been uh, focusing on the key markers of the uprising that began at Jesus' resurrection. It's a Jesus-centered uprising, and, and like most uprisings, it is, in fact, uh, structured to kind of upend corrupt systems to free people. Uh, but unlike most uprisings, the Jesus-centered uprising accomplishes this, accomplishes this liberation without violence or the threat of violence, without, without coercion, without power over but rather this is an uprising of peace, mercy, forgiveness, resurrection, uh, servitude instead of coercion. And so what we've been doing during Easter is, first of all, recognizing the nature of this uprising, but also looking at particular key markers of it as well. And we've learned so far that it is, first of all, an uprising of fellowship, that it is to include all people. But also it's an uprising of discipleship, and the way that we define discipleship is really seeking to follow the ways of Jesus as faithfully and as best as we know how in our own time and in our own culture. And then we also, it's an uprising of worship, that we worship, that we gather, that we set aside time and space whether it's on a Sunday morning in a church or whether it's in, in a forum like we're gathering together today, we set aside time to worship so that our hearts might be calibrated to the ways of the kingdom of God and that we might be able to resist the temptation toward coercive power. And so in the fifth week of this series, I want to explore how this Jesus-centered uprising is also an uprising of partnership. And to do that, I want to explore Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, uh, beginning with verse 11, and I want to read through verse 34. Uh, So it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I encourage you to stick with me. There's also some towns uh, and locations that are really difficult to say. And so I'm going to do my best to make my way through those with a, with a just be confident. And, uh, but don't take that as uh, expert advice on that's how you're supposed to say these things. So verse 11 of Acts 16 says this. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. Now we remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the gate by the river, where we were supposed to be, where there was supposed to be a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had gathered there. Now a certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, uh, was listening to us. And she was a dealer in purple cloth. Now the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly uh, to what was said by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed among us. Now one day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. And while she followed Paul and us, uh, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. 
Now she kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought before them the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and they are advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to adopt or observe. Now the crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. When suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed uh, that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for the lights, and then rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And at that same hour of the night, he took them and he washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house. He set food before them and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, this story has a lot of layers to it and a lot going on, but I want to highlight two partnerships that are happening in this, uh, in this story that help continue the uprising of Jesus. And the first thing that we need to know is the setting. Uh, this whole story is taking place in Philippi, which Luke, who is the author, uh, tells us is a leading city uh, of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, it's important to understand that biblical authors are often motivated to provide details in order to reveal something to us. In other words, they're not so concerned with giving us details uh, so that we can fill in the bullet points of the four W's, who, what, where, and when. Uh, but, But rather, saying that a city was a Roman colony was meant to communicate a particular kind of culture to the reader. So, uh, you could think of it this way, saying that a city was a Roman colony was a bit like saying this took place at the GW Zoo in Oklahoma. Uh, That's a Tiger King reference for those of you that aren't quite sure what that's all about. In other words, just by the setting itself, a particular culture is being implied. And one of the keystone cultural messages of Rome 
of ancient Rome was known as Pax Romana, which literally translates to the peace of Rome. Now we know from history that the peace of Rome basically boiled down to do what Rome says and things will go well for you. Go against Rome and you will face dire consequences. You could also you could think of it this way. The peace of Rome was maintaining the privilege of the rich and powerful through the threat of violence. Pax Romana was designed and intended to maintain privilege of the rich and powerful through the threat of violence. And so Pax Romana, this motivational motto that carried particular implications, is not and was not unique to Rome. Empires have always been built to benefit and protect the rich and the powerful. What this meant is that if you were in a slave in Rome, you had plenty of Romana, but not very much Pax. And perhaps this is why Paul is so emphatic that in Christ, in this new kingdom that God is building, centered on Jesus Christ, there is neither slave or free, Greek or Jew, male or female. You know, one temptation, especially for people of privilege living in an empire, is to believe that everyone's experiences, everyone experiences the world in the same way that they do. Uh, they, to, to believe, the temptation is to believe that their reality is everyone else's reality. And this simply isn't true. A person of privilege uh, does not experience life in the empire in the same way as others. So certainly this was true for slaves, but this was also generally true from uh, regarding women. Uh, generally speaking, women were also seen as being of less importance in the Roman Empire, although there were some important exceptions. Some women in ancient Rome did hold political influence and were successful in business. And Lydia was one such woman. Lydia met Paul and his companions at the place of prayer. It was there that she was taking a break from selling fabric that had been dyed purple. Now, isn't this interesting that uh, this little detail that we're given that she uh, was that she sold fabrics that had been dyed purple. It is actually in this detail uh, that we're shown and given an indication that Lydia was, in fact, a successful businesswoman who, in, in fact, carried some wealth with her. Uh, the reason is because purple fabrics uh, were often expensive to make, and purple fabrics were reserved for the, the wealthy elite to both wear and adorn their furniture. And so this little detail of selling purple fabrics is what gives us a hint that Lydia is well established as a successful businesswoman in Rome. She's also a Gentile, but we're told that she is a worshiper of God, which meant that she likely interacted with and had been learning from Jewish women in the marketplace and had often joined them in their prayers and expressions of worship. So then when Paul comes in and he begins to share the good news of Jesus with her, she believes his message and becomes a follower of the way. And after becoming a follower of Jesus, Lydia's whole house is baptized. And and let me just pause here because this is really important. It's important to note that 
uh, it is, it's referenced as Lydia's household. In other words, Lydia is not defined or identified by her relationship to any man, whether that be her husband or her father. And this is pretty unusual in ancient Rome, for usually females were always defined by their relationship to a man. If they were unmarried, then they were defined by their relationship with their father. But Luke, the author of Acts, is very clear to say that this is Lydia's household. So perhaps she's unmarried, but Luke is wanting to, to make, it, make it clear that he's not defining Lydia in, in relationship to any man, but on her own. That she has her own household, likely filled uh, with servants of her own, and likely with enough space to be able to host because immediately following uh, her uh, decision to follow the way of Jesus, she begins to offer hospitality to Paul and his companions. In other words, her actions uh, reflect her new life in Christ as she opens up her home, shows hospitality to Paul and his company. And the importance of hospitality, it, might, it may sound nice, oh great, uh, a com- nice, comfortable accommodations for Paul. But you have to realize that the importance of hospitality cannot be overstated here. That Paul was, was preaching in a Roman colony. He was sharing a message of forgiveness. He was proclaiming that a peasant, Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, is the world's true Lord. This message is certainly a threat to Roman power on both accounts. First, that the world has a true Lord other than Caesar. And then second, that forgiveness is a viable way of life. Rome knew nothing of forgiveness. And so which, with such a threatening uh, message to the empire, hospitality was essential for them to continue their work. And so not only did Lydia have a heart for it, but she had the house for it because of her success in business. And so we have this unlikely partnership between the Apostle Paul and Lydia, the successful and hospitable woman with an open heart. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, is always trying to get the message across that women are leaders in the Jesus-centered uprising. That women are key players who are right there from the beginning, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. I just was thinking about this, that not just for women in particular, and and how this can certainly speak truth into our own life and culture, uh, related to the, the role, the importance, the value of women. But I was thinking about this on a broader context, and I think it shows us this. Perhaps this shows us that people, that that folks who aren't privileged or propped up by empire are often more receptive to the good news of Jesus. Let that sink in. That often folks who are not propped up and privileged by the way of empire are often more receptive to the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, the reality is, as a male with white skin who has lived a middle-class life in America, I check all the boxes for for privilege. And one of the things that the Lord has been doing in my life 
certainly recently, but even over the course of the last few years, is, is to show me that the empirically privileged can have blind spots when it comes to the kingdom of God. That, that we, that, that maybe I can so easily fall into the temptation to believe that everyone experiences the world in the same way that I do. And this partnership between the Apostle Paul and Lydia, a woman in ancient Rome, but who had found a way to, to be successful in business and had gathered some wealth unto herself. But this unlikely partnership, at least on some level, shows us that those who are privileged by empire can easily have some blind spots. Uh, and that maybe what is needed is for us to listen to marginalized voices so that we can begin to remove those blind spots and more fully connect to the, to the message of the kingdom of God. Well, the second partnership that I want to look at this morning is, it comes a little bit later in the story, after Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. Now, they're thrown in jail because of the incident with the, um, with the, with the woman on the streets who had spirits in her. Uh, but Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. They, they are uh, stripped of their clothes. They're beaten. Um, and then they find themselves in the jail praying and singing. The praying I get, I can understand that. Uh, after going through uh, such a difficult time, uh, I can certainly understand the praying. It's the singing that I have a hard time with. The singing. D don't gloss over this. Uh, that after they've been physically harmed, stripped of their clothes, which means humiliated, and then found themselves locked up in the middle of the jail, Still, they are singing. First of all, when I read this, I was reminded of how much singing and how much music can, can serve to aim our hearts. Right? That, that music itself is, is such this, this powerful art form that creates melodies that stick in our minds, that stick in our hearts. And so the, the words of a song can quite literally aim our hearts toward a particular desire. Uh, this is why we find it so important to share uh, like songs of the week or our playlist that we've been sharing is, is we want our hearts to be aimed toward the kingdom of God, our hearts to be aimed toward the ways of hope during this pandemic. On a side note, I was also reminded of how much I miss singing with all of you in the same room, hearing one another's voices, and as a musician, being able to help lead in that process and lead in those ways. But again, I want to connect us to singing in this situation. I, I just, I can't help but think, that as their voices kind of echoed through the stone walls of the prison, right? Luke wants us to make sure that we know that the other prisoners who were in the jail heard Paul and Silas singing. And, and I imagine that they're, they're still in physical pain. They're certainly feeling kind of emotional isolation, having been arrested and thrown in jail. There's, there's an emotional impact to all of that. And, and I don't know what they were singing. That Maybe they're singing laments. 
maybe they're maybe they're singing songs that are kind of seeking to aim their hearts toward the joy uh, of the Lord that is available to us in all circumstances. But whatever the nature of their singing, what is clear is that their singing is a sign of defiance. It's an act of resistance. Uh, It was as if they were saying through the melody of their voices that we are not intimidated by your systems of oppression and domination. That their voices that carried the melody also carried a message that they had somehow been liberated from living according to Roman terms. Do you hear this? Do you catch this? Their melody carried resistance. That they had somehow been set free and that they had been liberated from the bullying tactics of the Roman Empire. They will not be intimidated by oppression and domination. This act of resistance, these melodies of defiance, captured the hearts and the imaginations of the people in prison. When I think about the purpose of prayer, when I think about the purpose of preaching, it is, in fact, to capture our imaginations about another way, the way of the kingdom of God the way of Jesus. And so as they were singing these songs of defiance, uh, there was an earthquake that shook the jail and opened the prison cells and broke the chains of the prisoners. It was an earthquake of liberation, not destruction. And if that weren't crazy enough, like if this story wasn't completely off the hook already, (laughs) then something even crazier happens. The jailer assumed that everyone in the jail was now free. And he knew that that would not sit well with the Roman authorities. So rather than become subject to the very system that he was in charge of, he decided to end his own life. Let that sink in for a moment. That that in a moment, he decided in a moment's notice that ending his life was better than becoming subject to the very system that he managed. Well, just before he harms himself, Paul speaks out and he says, hey, we're here. But it wasn't just Paul and Silas that were there. It was the whole jail. Luke tells us all of us are here. After having been freed from physical chains, the whole jail were still there because they knew that their escape would put the jailer at risk. So the many were protecting the life of the one by staying there. And so at this, at this, this astonishing development, this unbelievable news, the jailer fell to his knees and said, what must I do to be saved? Here, here's another way of understanding it or another translation. The jailer says, what must I do to experience the liberation that you have? because the only way to describe someone who sings songs in jail and then upon being miraculously freed decides to stay in order to protect their oppressor, the only word for that is liberation. Clearly this person, this group of people are living according to totally different 
terms, totally different ways of life. And so what must I do to experience the liberation that you have? And Paul has an opportunity to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have to know, you have to know that for this jailer, these words created this huge contrast. Because the only name that was attached to Lord was Caesar. But here is Paul, who has just done this miraculous thing, who has sung melodies of defiance and resistance, and who has, after being physically freed, demonstrated his ultimate liberation by protecting his oppressor, said the way that you experience this is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it created this stark contrast to the jailer who was only used to addressing Caesar as Lord. And what happens is this man too becomes a partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The jailer invited Paul and Silas into his home and he helps to clean their wounds. These are the very wounds that just a few hours earlier he either inflicted directly or oversaw. That the the order given to harm Paul and Silas was either carried out directly by this jailer or overseen by this jailer. And now the jailer, having come into contact with Jesus through the ministry of Paul, through the melody of defiance, now helps to heal and clean those wounds. He sets food before them, and he and his whole house are baptized. Here's what I want to see. Here's what I want us to see this morning. is that in this story, a Gentile woman is recognized as a key player in the kingdom of God. A slave girl is set free from demon possession, and a jailer heals the wounds of an inmate. The the overall message is clear, that in the uprising of Jesus, injustice will be confronted, and true peace compared to Pax Romana. True peace will come to bear on people's lives and on society. But it will only be accomplished through partnerships that normal systems and structures could not allow and would not imagine. Because that's how the kingdom of God works, is through partnerships. And so my encouragement to us, church, Emmaus Road Church, on this Sunday morning, is that we would be quick to listen to others. That we would be slow to make judgments. And that we would be open to partnerships that we could not have previously imagined. Because then the kingdom of God will be announced to the world. That we might be able to partner with people that we never dreamed possible. Because we refuse the temptation 
to believe that everyone experiences the world in the same way that we do, that we opened up our ears to listen to the stories of those who are not like us, that we weren't so quick to judge people's motivations and instead sought to proclaim and to lean on the mercy, the forgiveness, the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope this story is an encouragement to you, and I hope that uh, we join in this uprising um, as partners, partners in the gospel of Jesus. And and certainly we want to partner with one another uh, and with those who are similar to us in background and all the metrics that we might use to define and separate ourselves. But we also want to recognize that in the kingdom of God, those, that whole system of defining ourselves is upended, and that opens up partnerships um, that we p- couldn't previously imagine. So I hope that this has been good news for you today.